Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I've been doing this kind of work, you know, reporting of one kind for of another, sort of China analysis has kind of always been part of that for a couple of decades. And I don't think I've ever seen a consensus change as fast as the consensus changed on China in the course of the last few years. Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. One of the theme stories of the coronavirus crisis that I think deserves a lot more attention because it may, in the long run, be one of the most important geopolitical changes and most dangerous geopolitical changes that happens here is the escalation, the sharp escalation of tensions with China. The Trump administration, they screwed this up really badly. We are going to cover that more in the future, but suffice to say, there was a good way to prepare and respond to this and a bad way, and we did not do the good way, and people are going to die as a result. I am terrified of what is about to happen here. But as they sense this danger, they have pivoted across their administration to trying to take the blame off of them and put it onto China. At the UN Security Council, this is not just words, by the way, at the UN Security Council, they held up a resolution on coronavirus because they're trying to force the UN to refer to it as the Wuhan virus. In response, of course, China is retaliating. They're saying now the coronavirus came into their country, not through a wet market, which is what we think actually happened, um, but through the US military bringing it there. So now you have both countries, which bear tremendous blame for, in China's case, not being on top of this quickly enough, not reporting it quickly enough, not containing it quickly enough. And in the Trump administration's case, once we did know about it, not using the time we had and time that was also, by the way, bought by China's intense quarantine to prepare our country for it, to do contact tracing, to roll out testing, to get public health ready. There's a lot of blame to go around internally. And when that happens, political leaders send it over externally. But it is unimaginably dangerous in the context of a crisis this severe, both on its public health and its economic levels for tensions between the two largest economies in the world to rise this sharply and this recklessly. So I've wanted to focus on this and try to raise some alarm, at least some attention to it. And I asked Evan Osnos to join me here. Um, some of you may know Evan, of course, has been on the show before. He's a New Yorker writer. He is uh, the author of Age of Ambitions, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. He does better coverage of the U.S.-China relationship than I think just about anybody else out there. And he's an incredibly clear thinker on it. So I think this is a very important conversation at a very difficult, fragile time. 
As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Evan Osnos. Evan Osnos, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ezra. Let's start not with the U.S.-China relationship that we're going to get there, but with China itself. I want to read back a line from your New Yorker piece in January where you wrote, to a degree still difficult for outsiders to absorb, China is preparing to shape the 21st century much as U.S. shaped the 20th. Its government is deciding which features of the global status quo to preserve and which to reject. Tell me a bit more about that. I think in some ways that's been the hidden giant fact of our lives over the course of the last few years uh, is the degree to which China has been shifting the ground beneath our feet. And obviously, this is a subject of kind of permanent, low-grade conversation, particularly in the foreign policy community. But I think for people elsewhere, it is a little bit like you know, the old line about how does bankruptcy happen? It's gradually and then all of a sudden. And I think there's been this general sudden awareness in the American population just over the last couple of years about how significantly China is starting to rewrite rules on things like privacy and surveillance and human rights and their perception of sovereignty. And just to take one example, China has now become, in many ways, the leader of surveillance technology that they use for purposes of governance. So they introduced facial recognition on a very broad basis. Obviously, we have it in our country now, have it a lot of places around the world. China has been very aggressive in rolling that out, and they don't do it with a sense of, okay, this needs to be accompanied by a debate about civil liberties. It's really, you know, they're using it essentially the way that the United States put seatbelts into cars with a with a full throated commitment to that as a next generation technology. And it's not clear whether the American conversation about civil liberties that might accompany that is going to become the global conversation or whether that's just going to become a kind of a minority conversation that we have in our country and in our allies. And that's the kind of way in which China is preparing to significantly reshape the norms that govern international behavior. When people had this conversation, even let's call it 10 years ago, the sense was China is creating a model potentially for some developing countries, but the U.S. still stands as a beacon of not just wealth, but a kind of global political effectiveness. And something that has happened in the interim is that we've been through the financial crisis, but also we elected Donald Trump. I think the broad global view of American democracy and American public state capacity is that it isn't working very well. So how has that changed that dynamic of China being able to export and shape that global conversation? Well, in the broadest sense, it makes obviously China's case easier to make. They can go around the world and they can say, to take one example, in 1994, China's economy was smaller than Italy's, and it has grown 24 times since then. It is now second only to the United States, as we all know. Um, And they can point to their model as they go around the world and they can say, we have reduced extreme poverty below 1%. So in these kinds of basic metrics of how they perceive overall comprehensive national power, they have simply surpassed the United States in effectiveness. That's their case. Now, I think it's important to say that in a lot of cases, 
when they go out and make that argument, there are elements of the Chinese system that other countries do like. Things like the airports and the efficiency and the infrastructure and the fact that you can uh, get things done, get things built with speed. But there are, as there always should be, a lot of caveats there. And oftentimes, and I'll, just to give you one example of a caveat, you know, we often look at this infrastructure and we say, well, it's it's terrifically impressive. And then you come back a couple of years later and it hasn't held up very well. So that's an example of the kind of thing that are uh, reservations. And in some countries, more than you would expect, people are very aware of those reservations. I mean, you go to places, whether you're talking about Ecuador or you're talking about Myanmar, where they've looked at these pieces of technology, Chinese either literal technology or call it political technology. And they've said, we're not totally convinced. We're not sure. We don't really trust what the Chinese model is is offering us. And so there's a trust deficit there. So I would say if you were balancing this out on a spreadsheet, you'd say the United States has had tremendous losses in trust over the course of the last few years. And China was coming at a very from a very low base and they've sort of gained some, but they are not yet at the point where other countries are simply kind of falling into the Chinese embrace. And that creates this tremendous sense of uncertainty and, for lack of a better word, competition, a kind of moral competition between these two systems. Moral competition is interesting there. I want to come back to that because I wonder if that is what it really ends up being. But coronavirus enters into this in a very weird way. On the one hand, it is a tremendous failure of the Chinese political and government system. And on the other hand, their response to it is now being seen, certainly in some quarters, as a model, even as America and much of Western Europe struggles mightily to get this under control. So why don't we start with where it comes out? Um, what did coronavirus initially do, not just to China, but to the Chinese political system? There were whistleblowers. There was a lot of internal dissent. There was a slowness to report. How did it hit China's sociopolitical image of itself first? Well, when the virus first emerged in December in Wuhan, the initial instinct of the local authorities was to be very wary of allowing this out. Obviously, they, as we, as I think we all know, there were some doctors like Dr. Li Wenliang who tried to raise some alarms, first in the medical community, then others tried to sort of raise alarms in the broader community and the local police force and the apparatus of the state did its thing and basically said, this is not uh, this is not a reliable piece of information. These are, uh, I'm paraphrasing, dangerous rumors. And uh, these doctors were, were told to uh, not to talk about it. The virus continued to grow. The best estimates are that about 7 million people from Wuhan left by the time that the state shut down Wuhan, which is uh, January 23rd. We know that based on Chinese telecom data, uh, which has been published. And in that period when the 7 million left, that obviously contributed significantly to the overall growth of the virus. But before we talk about that, it's worth pointing out that then they imposed this extraordinary set of conditions on Wuhan, which have been really admired, frankly, in a lot of the world because of its ability to significantly flatten the curve. I mean, they had, at, after being overrun at the hospitals, they then imposed not just regular lockdowns, but really specific levels of quarantine. And we can talk about some of the details of that later if it's useful. Um, but that had the effect of being able to significantly bring down the numbers to the point now that Hubei, which is the, the area around Wuhan, has now been opened up. 
And I, I think one of the things that's useful to point out, and I would credit my uh, friend Bill Bishop, uh, who's a China analyst who writes the Sinocism newsletter, he he makes the point: don't trust China's what they say on on questions about the infection and the and the rate, but but look at what they do and what they've done are a couple of significant things that indicate that they really are confident about their their progress. Number one, they have allowed Xi Jinping to schedule a trip to Wuhan, which is a big deal. They wouldn't allow the leader to go if they didn't think it was actually under control. And they have also started opening up larger parts of the country, and they wouldn't do that if they thought it was going to imperil their uh, their stability, ultimately their political stability. So those are indications that even if the numbers might be fudged, and, and we should always be alert to that, that actually it, it might be moving in the direction that they uh, that they really are proud of. And now the question becomes, all right, let's analyze really carefully and specifically what did they do, how did they do it, and how much can that be adapted to other parts of the world? Tell me a bit about what that quarantine in Wuhan was like. So I'm here, I have shelter-in-place regulations in the Bay Area, but people go walk in the park, um, they go to the grocery store, There, there's a lot that isn't happening, it is a very strange time to be here, but it's not a quarantine. Is that what was happening in Wuhan or was there a different level of suppression being imposed by the Chinese government? Yeah, it was a much more intense procedure. I mean, what they did was uh, it wasn't just that they told people, "Okay, everybody stay in your homes and self-quarantine or do this or that. They actually said, if you show mild symptoms or if you've had close contact with somebody who has it, then it's not that we're going to ask you to stay by yourself. We're going to take you to another place. In some cases, they did move people physically to hotels or to kind of these little guest houses or these big open areas that have been set aside as quarantine locations. And it was not a particularly, in many cases, very pleasant experience, but it was it was designed to be a real rupture and to, to move people out of those environments completely. And their belief, and I think this is one that is generally sort of gaining more attention among public health experts, is that the difference between an ordinary shelter-in-place system and this much more intensive form of locking people down is significant. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to pretend I can give you a, a really thorough description of the merits and the costs. But it is pretty clear now that that system was part of the reason why they were able to change the course of this as abruptly as they did. I want to ask one more question on China specifically, and then I want to move into the U.S.-China relationship, which is when I've been to China to do reporting, the thing that has always struck me is the pervasive belief, at least the one they communicate to me, that the society would destabilize if growth fell below 7%. Now the economy is largely stopped. There's been this huge disruption. Uh, if this comes back, they're going to re-enter very harsh quarantine and for who knows how long. So what will that mean? Uh, we know Chinese economic growth is going to be much worse and it was coming from a somewhat unstable foundation before this. But what will it mean for their political stability and their internal political dynamics if they have a really significant hit to their economic system for quite some time? I think the answer rests partly on some of the softer elements of their political equation, meaning things like the degree to which 
And when I say soft, I don't mean mild. I mean uh, abstract. Things like how much are they able to persuade the public and rally the public around the idea that the leadership is doing everything it can and is doing it competently and is uh, fighting on their behalf against something that they couldn't avoid. Because the entire theory of Chinese politics from the very top has been that you have to maintain economic growth in order to keep people employed, keep them happy, and keep them essentially pacified against the indignities and the unpleasantries that come with being in an authoritarian system. And that if you lose that driver, uh, then you're at risk of unrest and ultimately the loss of political monopoly. And what they're trying to do now is to, to recognize that the growth, certainly in the beginning of the year, went off a cliff. I mean, the estimates are that they were negative 9% in the first quarter. So they're not going to be able to rely on anything like that. And what they're turning up is the power of propaganda, the power of marshalling political energy to support the the legitimacy of the state, what they call in Chinese the mandate of heaven. And I think if I was placing a bet on it, I would say they're going to do a very good job, uh, a very successful job. I, I, I mean, good in the sort of straight performance metric system. They're going to be able to do that. The public will give them a lot of credit for being able to deal with the virus. Um, but it doesn't happen by accident. It happens with a huge amount of control over conversation, over the internet, over what's reported in the newspaper, over what's said anywhere. And that's their standard playbook. And they're, they've developed it to a very advanced degree. But this is exactly one of the dynamics here that worries me. And, and the reason I wanted to start with China is because I think we have an intuitive sense, if you're here in America, what the American political dynamics are. But there, you write in this January piece you did about how a essay called A Guide to Eating Tree Bark about the sacrifices of the 1950s and the, the Chinese sacrifices to resist external aggression has been going viral recently. And if there's going to be a need to rely heavily on political energy right now, if there's going to be the need to build nationalism as an answer to declining growth, and you're going to do that in a context where America is led by this much loathed president who is also attacking China constantly, I wonder how much of that political energy is going – the easiest place for that political energy to go is going to be into a nationalism against the American aggressor or American humiliators or whatever it might be in the framing in a way that strikes me as a very dangerous context on the other side that I don't know that we're giving a lot of thought to here. I think that's exactly right. For years, people who think seriously about China's political trajectory have said basically that the biggest risk in the U.S.-China relationship is that there will come a time when China, for whatever reason, we generally imagined it would be some economic depression, would need to rally people around the flag in a particularly acute brittle, aggressive way. And we thought maybe that would be around Taiwan, or it might be uh, for a while, of course, it has looked like Hong Kong was the battleground for those kinds of encounters. But it's going back to the very origins of the revolution in 1949, you know, there has been built into Chinese politics, the tool that when needed, you can direct your animus, your political energy against a foreign opponent. And in this case, and we can talk about the American side of that equation, we have seen that. I mean, China has moved over the course of the last 
several weeks to focus much more uh, directly on the question of whether, uh, and you've heard this from people at the very top of the foreign ministry, you know, spokesman system saying, the United States, did it help us? Did it not help us? Maybe there was actually at one point a spokesman for the foreign ministry who said that this virus may have been brought to China by the U.S. military. And this was not a crank on the internet saying it. This was actually the official spokesman for the foreign ministry. Uh, There's no, obviously, no evidence to support that claim. But that tendency is a serious risk. And, um, And I think it's one that begins us it moves us further down this spiral of deterioration and it it has its own political effects. It generates its own antibodies within our system. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. One of the things I've been trying to do in some of these interviews is keep in our heads that coronavirus is coming in a context. There is in the economy, in US-China relations, in social isolation, everything that coronavirus is colliding into, there's a pre-existing social and geopolitical context for it. And sometimes that context is strong and it gives us more room to respond. And sometimes it's pretty weak. So if I was talking to you, let's call it two months ago or a month ago, before coronavirus erupted into the global catastrophe it now is, and I said to you, how would you describe the state of the U.S.-China relationship? What would you have told me? I would have said that it was at the worst point since the forging of the relationship in 1972. A senior White House official who has some distance from the policy on this question, has a little bit of room for objectivity, said to me, uh, the relationship is in free fall. And that, that is an accurate description. That's how it was before this latest period. You know, we had these underlying serious real tensions in the relationship around some of the pre-existing conditions like questions around human rights and China's treatment of Muslims in Xinjiang. But then, of course, you also had the more specific, more recent tensions around trade and around uh, China's attempts to acquire American technology. And then you had on top of that some of the 
just let's call it the Trump body language, just the way in which Trump has been so much more overtly aggressive about the U.S.-China relationship. And then on top of it, you had on the Chinese side, and this is hugely important, over the course of the last eight years, you've had this much harsher authoritarian system kind of take hold under Xi Jinping. And he has been very effective at using this at focusing on the threat from abroad as a way of trying to, as he describes it, as a way of trying to rally political support around him, both among elites and in the general population. One of the key points is that he often has pointed to over the years the reasons why the Soviet Union collapsed. And in the Chinese mind, the collapse of the Soviet Union was not the inevitable result of a flawed system. It was a great tragedy of the 20th century. And the reason why it collapsed in the official telling in China is that they allowed themselves to be corrupted by the West. They were not ideologically pure enough, not ideologically vigilant enough. And their population was ultimately peeled away by Western thinking. And Xi Jinping has been determined to prevent that. And all of that, if you, you stack up those two mounds of facts on both sides, the U.S. and the China side, that was all in place before the virus arrived. I, I want to hold on that point. It's like because I think to American ears, it's very weird. <laughs> the American narrative on the difference between the Soviet Union and China is that one reason China has thrived in the way it has is that unlike the Soviet Union, it has been enormously ideologically flexible. It opened up its economy. It has developed this sort of strange form of authoritarian capitalism. It didn't hold in this planned economic dimension that at least many of us now believe is part of what led to the Soviet Union's downfall. So when China looks out and says the Soviet Union was too ideologically flexible, I mean, she has said this explicitly, and that China will not be. What is crossing in these conversations? What do they mean by ideologically flexible that they see in the Soviet Union and not in themselves versus what we see as ideologically flexible that we see in China and not in the Soviet Union? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, the I think the key distinction would be that in the Chinese telling of history, the reason why China was able to thrive in ways that the Soviet Union was not was not because China was sort of ideologically promiscuous. It was because they had what they called the birdcage economy. That's the term that they use, which is it is an iron cage that is fixed in its perimeter, but allows things to flourish and thrive within them. And that image of the birdcage economy has really been at the heart of China's official imaginings of how things have occurred. And so they use that as a guiding force. That's a very different thing from the, you know, the casual metaphor we always use, right, in the West when we talk about China is that they unleashed their economy. They unleashed this human potential after after the end of the Cultural Revolution. And unleashing, I mean, just at the most barest sense, is a is a really different metaphor. It's a very different image from how the Chinese state and and sort of the intellectual class has described it as this much more contained process. And so it really, it wasn't that hard for Xi Jinping to shift the narrative one notch or, you know, maybe more than one notch, but just in a, in a direction that was familiar to people to say, no, it was in fact what we didn't let go of that has allowed us to thrive. It was not what we let go of. I should add, Ezra, you know, it's been really fascinating long before the virus 
that one of the remarkable changes in Chinese politics just over the last few years has been the way that the story of Deng Xiaoping, the leader, of course, who did embark on all of these reforms and did push China out into the world in all these ways, you know, he's been sort of in our mind, of course, we think of him as the he must be the heroic figure in the modern Chinese story. He's the one who took it from a life expectancy of being way down in the developing world to having something up highest uh, among advanced countries. And of course, in China's politics in the last few years, they've been they've been actually downplaying Deng Xiaoping much more than they have been celebrating him. And that's a sign of the way in which they wanted to keep control of that history. Is part of this too that Americans think a lot about ideology in terms of economics, and the Chinese think of the economic side of this as being less ideological, and it's more about nationalism and a sense of national and historical destiny? I think that's true. Yeah. I think a lot of China's perceptions of how you measure national health and success and power are dependent on these feelings of, are you being respected? Are you able to protect yourself against violation? You know, that is much more how China has described its, its, um, its goals over the last few years. They almost take the economic side for granted because they say, look, we, you know, we have a fifth of humanity. We're a very industrious culture. We're, we're probably going to do fine on the economic side. Um, but what actually is the sort of neuralgic issue is, are we inviolable? Are we able to defend our borders against incursions, either physical or uh, spiritual? Are we able to define our own destiny? And I, I think this gets sometimes overplayed in the Chinese narrative that this is all a product of the humiliations of the of the nineteenth century, when China was, in, as as we all know, was in fact invaded and was carved up in a lot of ways by imperial powers. And that's true. That really, there is an overhang from that in a powerful way. But then that has become also politically expedient, and they have harvested that idea and cultivated it and used it as an essential pillar of the Communist Party's growth and support. So that's the ideological context on the Chinese side. If I rewind the clock on America's thinking about China a couple of years, I think about things like First, there was this belief that if we welcome China into the global economic system, it would liberalize politically, which has not really happened. And I think that neoliberal vision has been left looking quite bad. But there was also this idea, and you would see it in books like Fareed Zakaria's The Rise of the Rest, about how should America think about a multipolar world? How should we think about a world where China would become, at some point at least, the, the single largest economy? Could that be a world that is good for us if we understood it as positive sum, not zero sum or negative sum? And into that stepped Donald Trump, who had a much more, I almost want to call it ancient take on this, which is that America should be number one. And if anybody else was going to be number one, it was going to be intrinsically bad for us. And we had to do something to to stop it. And that took a lot of hold after he won the presidency has become much more dominant. in I think the Republican Party and now collides into this crisis. So given the amount of reporting you've done on this, both in the Obama and, and Trump administrations, how would you characterize the changing American psychology towards China itself? 
It's been really dramatic. I've been doing this kind of work, you know, reporting of one kind for of another. Sort of China analysis has kind of always been part of that for a couple of decades. And I don't think I've ever seen a consensus change as fast as the consensus changed on China in the course of the last few years. And I, I, I can mean specifically, I'll tell you specifically what I mean. There was a, a generally bipartisan view for a very long time that, in a sense, the solution to China was to hug them harder. You know, it was, okay, they're going to be fighting us on questions like human rights. They're going to be fighting us on how to deal with North Korea. They're going to be stealing IP. And always what we should do is just remember that if we can ride it out, that if they can, if we can help fortify them and build them into uh, a fully advanced economy that they will probably begin to at least play nicer, but also maybe even take on some more elements of political openness. I don't think anybody, and this is, you know, there's been a little revisionist history, but I, I don't think anybody really, anybody serious thought, okay, China's going to wake up tomorrow and become a democracy. They're, they're just, they're not. It was just not a part of any reasonable projection. But there was a real sense that actually it would help American interests and help the rest of the world. And frankly, what was the alternative? You know, if the United States had chosen in 1972 when Nixon went over to Beijing. Instead of doing that, if China, if the United States had said, all right, we're going to put you in a box and we're going to try to isolate you as much as possible, basically make you a giant North Korea. What would that mean for 1.4 billion people? And how would China have dealt with its neighbors? Would it have been a more aggressive, violent, aggressive uh, party than it has been? So that was the governing view. And it was really, there were not significant questions around the edges. Some people questioned it. And then there was, because of Trump, I think he actually surfaced more than he caused. By coming in and talking about China in a completely different way, as you know, on the campaign trail, he said, it's time for us to, as he put it, uncouple from China's economy, the, you know, the term that became used is decouple. Um, but that was treated as a ridiculous idea at the time. It's now become kind of standard think tank panel topic in Washington just you know three three years later and what happened was it's not that he caused it so much as he forced the conversation he shifted the window he it turned out that there really was this growing discontent not just among Republicans but also among Democrats that that this hug them harder strategy was just a was just flawed and that it was time for the United States to significantly rethink how they were going to do it. And they had different reasons. I mean, on the Republican side, it tended to be frustrations among American businesses that they weren't getting the market access they'd been promised, that they were sick of being hacked and having IP stolen. Among Democrats, it was a feeling that the United States was at risk of essentially condoning human rights violations and allowing a new system of authoritarianism to be validated. But they culminated in this moment in which you had almost, you know, in, in broader terms, it was almost instantaneous that you had over the course of just a, a year or two, a profound shift where now the default position in Washington among both parties is that the United States is is in a, a significantly more vigilant and wary position vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. And I think that is the new normal, and it's a very unstable normal. Yeah, I, I think this is a really important point because Trump offers a very crude approach, I think, to, to geopolitics, which is offensive to a lot of people. It's this very zero-sum, dog-eat-dog world for you, to, for you to rise, we have to fall. But what at the same time he did, and I've had a ton of reporting conversations like this, 
was he created a lot of space for people who had real concerns about the China relationship to begin expressing them by staking out a more extreme poll in this debate. A lot of business leaders and even a lot of, say, liberal politicians who didn't like the trade situation or what or very correctly what Chinese what China is doing to the Uyghurs and, and other things. It created space for all these concerns with China to to erupt into the fore. And it has reversed the whole polarity of this conversation. You may not agree just as before. You may not have agreed all the way with the hug them harder strategy, but the question was always how to bring them more into the political system and, and, and what could you do to ease that? Now, you may not agree all the way with we need to make sure China falls in order for us to keep rising, but there's a lot of space for your particular criticisms or concerns or needs in in, in the relationship to, to come out. And what scares me a bit about this isn't that I disagree with a lot of the individual criticisms. I don't. But I think we're seeing right now that in the event of a rupture or a crisis, this can be weaponized into a very dangerous place. And so, for instance, uh, in the UN Security Council, the Trump administration was trying to get the resolution to call coronavirus the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. Um, Senator Tom Cotton, who many people see as a sort of future leader in the Republican Party, even maybe a current one, uh, said on Fox and Friends that China unleashed this plague on the world and there will be a reckoning when we're on the backside of it. This isn't the rhetoric of let's alter the trade relationship with China. This is the rhetoric you imagine 10 years before you actually end up in armed conflict with another power. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. And this is is really the heart of the matter. I think you described it exactly right. What began as a necessary moment, uh, an update in in our understanding of the U.S.-China relationship after a lot of deferred maintenance, has slipped into a new phase, which is that actually now a lot of the political dynamics that can drive unexamined thinking in Washington have taken hold, and they've taken hold in Beijing. And that's a pretty dangerous combination. And I'll give you a couple of, ex- of, of examples. Um, you know, even before the virus took hold, there was a very clear sense. I, this is what I was I was really inspired to write about in January in this piece in The New Yorker about how it had become an element of ordinary politics now in Washington. And the clearest sign of that was that Newt Gingrich, um, who I think of as a, a fairly reliable measure of Washington opportunity, had written a book called Trump versus China. And you know, Newt Gingrich has published 30 books since leaving office. And the fact that he had recognized that there was for him some traction to be had on China, not a subject he's ever um, written much about before, was a real sign of a shift. And I began to hear from a lot of people, pretty serious China analysts, some of them very critical. I'll give you, I mean, one example is a friend who is Mexican, who has no love for Donald Trump and is a very serious China scholar. And he said to me, look, in the beginning, I I, I kind of had to hold my nose and say, I don't like Donald Trump, but I think he's doing a lot of good stuff here when it comes to shifting the balance of power in the US-China dynamic. And at a certain point, though, it lost the boundaries that it had occupied before of being a rational uh, new phase and had slipped into this much less considered version of analysis. It, it, it was it was really it had just become reflexive. I mean, it, it was now like everybody had to have a hawkish China position, and 
that in its own way is as risky and as much of a potential disservice to American interests as having a reflexively compliant position with China. Uh, and so the key now is to figure out what is that path. And now with, with the virus on top of it, it makes it much, much harder. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. I want to bring some blood back into this. I am terrified. I am terrified of what this could mean. Not because I reflexively think we should be pro-China. I very much don't. I've done episodes on what they're doing to, to, to the Uyghurs. I think they're quite scary in a lot of different ways. Um, the level of surveillance and uh, espionage they, they conduct, it's, it's really worrying. But when I think about tail risk in the world right now, for America and China to be at odds, given the number of crises that can erupt that would either create political opportunity on either side to scapegoat the other or actually put our interests into direct conflict. It's very worrying. Um, I'll, I'll just give one kind of easy example here. When you go back 10 years or 15 years, and this has been pointed out by the economic historian Adam Tooze, it was constantly discussed that China was this huge holder of U.S. treasuries. And this was so scary because China was, in effect, our lender and they could call us due at any time. And this was something liberal politicians talked about, conservative politicians talked about. But then it didn't really happen because China didn't want to sell off all the U.S. treasuries. That would have been bad for it in all kinds of different ways. They need a lot of U.S. currency uh, to keep their system stable. But right now, for instance, they are facing a shortage of U.S. currency. 
the kinds of moves the Federal Reserve is making to help other countries and even big corporations in other countries get the U.S. currency they need to keep operating using these swap lines, they can't directly extend to China for all kinds of geopolitical reasons. And China also doesn't like us at the moment, and we don't like them. And so you could really imagine in a world where they need currency and don't feel they need us, they do begin to sell off U.S. treasuries. And all of a sudden, a lot of the fiscal space we currently feel like we have to respond to the crises we are uh, going into begins to evaporate. And that's to say nothing of risks of armed conflict. I think uh, even before the virus had uh, was the defining fact of the relationship, there was this remarkable consensus that had formed com- on completely opposite ends of the political spectrum that we were at really extraordinary risk of uh, of a very specific scenario, which is a pre-World War I scenario where you have two blocks uh, that have formed in the world, one around the United States, one around China, or multiple blocks. And those are squared off against with each other with with very little trust and with their own internal political weather that is driving them to make wrong-headed assumptions about the other. And when I say it was coming from opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, Arnie Westad, who's a great Yale scholar, great historian, was telling me this at the same time. And he is as his own by his own description, he's a liberal, uh, as as the same time that that Henry Kissinger was telling me the same thing. And they have nothing in common with each other except for the fact that they deeply worried that this block mentality was taking hold. And that leads you then into the moment that you're describing, which is, all right, now uh, if you're China and you're looking at the possibility of taking action, taking steps uh, to defend yourself, as you imagine, or to sort of punitive steps against the United States, for a long time, the assumption has always been they would not dump U.S. treasuries. They had, of course, the opportunity during the financial crisis, uh, but they didn't do it. And the belief has been that that would be mutually assured financial destruction, and they don't want to do that. Over the, the years since the financial crisis, they have taken a lot of steps to try to be less dependent on the United States. They have have sold some of those uh, some of those holdings. But what they don't have today with the United States is that that basis of, call it social trust. I know we talk about trust all the time as the missing ingredient, but it matters when it comes to international politics hugely. There is not at the moment, and this is, I would say, the big blinking fact and risk, is that there is not an assumption on the Chinese and the U.S. sides that the other one basically has the same interest, which is global stability. There is a real feeling that the other one is is seeking to hurt. And that is a big change from where we were when the country or when the world was approaching a crisis in 2008. And you wrote to me in an email that your view is China is oscillating between seeing the U.S. as a spent force and as a malevolent force, and neither assumption will lead them to good places for for either of us. Can you talk a bit about that and, and how it might inform their calculations? Yeah. Well, they see us at times as a spent force in the sense that they believe that the political disorder in our country, um, the measures of despair, uh, the fact that we have a declining life expectancy, all of these kinds of measures are, to their mind, a sign of a country that has peaked. Now, obviously, this is an unwelcome uh, portrait to us, but that's how they see it. And there's elements of truth to that, that they see us as having lost our way. And because of that, that leads them 
to overreach over the course of the last few years, particularly starting after the financial crisis. Uh, and the financial crisis was just a crucial point on the timeline in China's imagine, uh, sort of imagination of the United States, because they looked at what our system had done, a system that they had essentially cribbed from, they believed in it, and they said, wow, this thing turns out to be a house of cards and kind of a con. And they decided that it wasn't, that they had to go their own way. And that empowered a lot of nationalistic voices within the leadership, including Xi Jinping. And it allowed him and his set of ideas about a much more confrontational approach to the United States to prevail. So that's the cost of them thinking of us as a spent force. And now you add in another piece. And and by the way, I will say one other thing about that, which is that they caused them to overreach in ways like they began to describe explicitly that their system represented an alternative to the United States, to an alternative to Western democracy. They began to go into other countries more aggressively with things like the Belt and Road Initiative and to expand into places faster than oftentimes those countries wanted. And so it kind of began to generate a lot of unease in, in places that said, well, what is China's game plan here? Is, is this you know debt diplomacy? Are we going to end up controlled by the Chinese. So that's the overreach piece of it. But then there is the idea that they also look at us and think, well, actually, it's Donald Trump just is not the sign of a country in decline. He's actually lashing out and is now going to try to use China as a tool to prop up America, to prop up his own support. And so then they regard... So this is why when Trump and his associates say that this is the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. And you had Secretary of State Pompeo the other day actually uh, held up an agreement among, uh, I think it was at the G20 virtual meeting that they had. They, he actually slowed down the process because he was asking them to use the term Wuhan virus in the official language. And they said, well, that's not what the WHO. So why does that matter? It seems like semantics. It's actually a hugely symbolic and uh, powerful ingredient, because on the Chinese side, they look at that and they say, the United States is seeking to replay the humiliations of the 19th century. They want us to be kept down, to be kept back. That is a malevolent desire. And for that reason, we have to fight back. And so those are the two images that they are oscillating between right now. And and that's part of what scares me here. And it's why I wanted to focus, at least in the first part of this conversation, on, on their incentives as well. Because if you're China and your economy is about to collapse for at least a little while, like almost everybody's is, and you're making political decisions about whether or not to try to handle that through an eruption of national fervor aimed against the United States. And then Tom Cotton is saying that you unleash this virus on the world and you're going to have to pay for it. And the U.S. Secretary of State is trying to get official multilateral organizations to call it the Wuhan virus. Well, in one world where you wanted to cooperate with the U.S., you wanted potentially their financial and medical help, you might decide that would have been good politics, but there would have been other costs. But now you might decide that's good politics and it's necessary given what the U.S. is going to try to do to us here. And then, of course, as China retaliates, says that we brought this virus to them um, as they withhold cooperation, as they potentially retaliate against us in a in hundred different ways, that then creates more fuel in the fire for American nationalistic and confrontational politicians to attack China with more 
fury. Like these are the cycles of escalation that lead to eventual confrontations and people have a lot of trouble backing down from. Yep. And here's here's what I will say, what I think about, I totally agree with that scenario. And here's where I think actually with the obvious caveats that this prediction are is cheap and it might be wrong about Chinese uh, political behavior. But this is what my gut tells me is that they will be radical at home and they will be cautious abroad. Meaning that what you saw in Wuhan, which was this pretty radical form of lockdown, the kinds of, you know, forced quarantine that most of the world would find kind of hard to picture, hard to imagine doing in China, they're perfectly prepared to do it. But when it comes to the international space, they have found themselves almost kind of to their astonishment in the last few years as being the grownups in the room during the Trump era. I don't want to overstate it. There are a lot of ways in which China is still disruptive and is uh, arguably a revisionist power in the purest sense. But they are trying to maintain the global system at the moment that has served them well. They don't really want to blow that up unless they absolutely have to. That makes me think that their bias is towards a minimum necessary intervention on the on the international level and radical drastic intervention on the domestic side and that would argue against them doing something like trying to blow up the american financial system because they are deeply conservative when it comes to uh, the possibilities of of an of an economic depression for all the reasons we started this conversation about which is that it's the basis of their political stability yeah this is something adam too said to me that i thought was such a sharp insight that the truly conservative player in all this has been china which understands that if things are to stay the way they are then very radical measures need to be taken immediately that it is the, cons- the the true conservatives who understand the need for radicalism whereas someone like donald trump does not want to take radical measures because he is not truly committed to the way things are. He doesn't really care. He doesn't have any deep uh, attachment to any particular anchor. And that's allowed him to react to this with, I would say, a lot of oscillation in his response um, because he's not working backwards from some state he wants to preserve. But on that note, what comes next? Let's say that in 2020, Donald Trump loses the election and Joe Biden or some other politician becomes president. What is their range of space with regard to China after the Trump administration and in the midst of all this? Does China want a renormalization? Will we want a renormalization? Or are we in a new normal that can be managed with less erraticism and hot rhetoric, but is going to be a slow escalation of confrontation for structural reasons, no matter what individual politicians prefer or even really do? There is no going back to the way it was before. It just simply too much has changed. And I think that the the baseline assumptions now in the United States of, of what the U.S.-China relationship is going to look like on both sides have just have just moved. So that's point one. But I think point two is that a Biden administration, if that's what we have, will have a much more prudent policy towards China would be the way I'd put it. I mean, and I use that word carefully, meaning that they really do not imagine that there's that it's business as usual. They, they, they recognize that. I think there's actually, they wouldn't put it this way, but I think there's some kind of a uh, little bit of embarrassment among some 
Democrats on China who say, actually, we really did allow this thing to go on too long in a way that was harmful to American interests. And, and we should have raised more alarms than we could. Now, they have a lot of reasons why they didn't. They would say, you know, we had other priorities. We were dealing with things like Iran and North Korea, and we were trying to get China on board for climate change. And we sort of imagined that we could. But all that being said, there's now a recognition that it would be different, but it would be different in a way that would be not pointing towards the kind of uh, sharp political confrontation that Donald Trump has has encouraged throughout his entire time in politics, beginning as a candidate. I think for a long time, the Chinese side just assumed that Trump was going to be reelected. I, I heard this over and over again. And their readings of American politics, frankly, are often pretty poor. They don't really understand uh, things that are emerging, that are coming around the bend. And that's not unique to them. We're not particularly good at predicting Chinese politics either. But I think they now are much less convinced that Donald Trump is a fact of their lives for the next five years. And so that makes them more likely to want to try to ride out a Trump administration without without causing huge amounts of chaos. And uh, so I, I think that the next president is going to come in, whoever that, if, if the next, let's put it a different way, it's, if the next administration comes in, whether it's a Trump two or whether it's a Biden administration, they're going to be dealing now with the U.S.-China relationships as a, as a central challenge, but it's going to be a completely different one depending on which uh, person is in, the, is in the seat. I think that's a huge decision. Let me end on this question, which is in your piece, you referenced the famous George Kennan essay that charted the path of containment in between the options of appeasement and all-out war. What do you think America's orientation towards China should be? What is the master strategy or even simply the affect that we should hold here? Well, the key point with Kennan is that containment, which was his great innovation, his idea, uh, which became the defining concept of the Cold War, is not an option right now. And that's not me talking. That's everybody who knows this relationship very deeply, even people who are incredibly critical of China. Uh, they say, look, it's just China is too big to be contained in the way that the Soviets were. The Soviet economy was a fiction. It was painted rust. The Chinese economy, even with its serious flaws, and there are greater flaws than the data usually suggests, is just a much larger fact of our future. It is also true that containing China in the way that we contain the Soviets is not realistic when it comes to the role that China plays in our own economic health and in our, meaning its place in our supply chains, the role that it plays for American companies. I mean, any CEO, if they were having an honest conversation with you right now, would say, Look, we absolutely want to be in China in the future. The idea of decoupling from them is ridiculous. We would we would sooner decouple from the United States. That is an honest take that you hear from American CEOs at, at, at moments of, I would say, extraordinary candor just by sheer numbers. So then the question is, if containment is not an option, well, what is an option? And the, the answer is that it's not us or them. It is us and them. That is a reality. And that is not an argument for complacency or for lying down. In fact, it is a call to arms morally and politically to stand up and say, we will positively assert that democratic values are something we believe 
are good. They are universal. And we will contest the Chinese moral vision in a serious way. And it's not about, you know, trying to get the virus to be renamed the Chinese virus. It's about making a credible claim on behalf of American values that the rest of the world will choose to believe. And that, as we all know, is that is the ball game, And that's the reason why our values, uh, the ones that we believe, endorse and project are our most powerful weapon when it comes to this uh, to this confrontation with China. We always end the show on book recommendations and you've been here before, so you've offered some. But 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 let me ask you the question this way. If you're somebody who wants to understand not the U.S.-China relationship, but China itself, the way the Chinese think of themselves or think about the world. What are a couple books you found helpful, uh, fiction or nonfiction, in that end? I'd say one that's an interesting book that people would learn a lot from is called Wish Lanterns by Alec Ash. And it's really a profile of young people in China. Simple as that. It is not explicitly concerned with politics. He's not hanging around with kind of... Um, CEOs or dissidents, he's essentially hanging around with the future and he does it very effectively. It's just a, it's a very skillful narrative. So Wish Lanterns is one of them. The other one I would suggest is a book by John Pomfret called The Middle Kingdom and the Beautiful Country. And that is really a history of the US-China relationship. I'm pausing because it may be called The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, but it is really, um, the best single volume history uh, of the U.S.-China relationship that also encompasses some pretty crucial insights into how China sees itself and its relationship to the outside world. And um, I think for my money, those would be the two ways in which I would, in English, begin to get an insight into how China sees itself and and us. Evan Osnos, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ezra. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Thank you to Evan Osnos for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for engineering and producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.